My name is Kathy, and I'm a member of the Athens Al-Anon family group in Athens, Texas. Al-Anon tells me that I should tell you what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like today. Before I do that, I want to make several things real clear. First of all, being the wife of an alcoholic does not make me an Al-Anon. Being married to an alcoholic makes me the wife of an alcoholic, or the popular term from a lot of the treatment centers, a co-alcoholic. What makes me an Al-Anon is attending Al-Anon meetings and working the 12-step program of Al-Anon in my daily life. I also want you to know that I am not an authority on Al-Anon. All I have is my own story, my own experience how Al-Anon has changed my life, and how I work the 12-step program in Al-Anon in my life today. The other thing I want you to know is that my husband and I have shared everything since the day we were married. We've shared the good times and we've shared the hard times, and we certainly shared his alcoholism. Now, I'm not here to take his inventory, but I have his permission to tell you anything about his drinking as it relates to my story. I'm the youngest of four children, and that might tell you right off that I was just a tad spoiled, and I was. My mom thought I had my dad wrapped around my finger, and my dad thought I had my mom wrapped around my finger, and my sisters and brother just gave in to me. At a very early age, I developed a philosophy for myself to live by. And that philosophy was this. I can do anything that I want to do. All I have to do is make up my mind and I can do it. And I can do it all by myself. I don't need anybody's help. And furthermore, I can do it with a degree of perfection. Now, I learned very quickly if you're going to live by this philosophy, you can't ask questions. You have to figure things out for yourself and do it. About this same time, I came up with my own philosophy about God, and I was to carry this philosophy with me until I got to Al-Anon, to people just like you. And after a period of time, you showed me and taught me different. Now, my philosophy about God came from a statement I heard my mother make many times when I was young. And I didn't understand what she meant, but you have to remember, I don't ask questions. I had to figure it out for myself. That statement was this. Anytime anybody would do anything harmful or hurtful to someone else, my mother would say, God will take care of them. Now, I didn't understand what she meant, and it confused me. I w grew up in a religious home, and I went to Sunday school and church, and I knew that God loved me, and he loved everybody else. So I figured what she must mean is that if you do something wrong, God will punish you. He's up there with a big scorecard on everybody, and if you do good, you get a check mark, and if you do bad, he'll punish you. He's a loving God, but he's a punishing God. And what you have to do is figure these things out for yourself because God's busy grading. So you figure things out, do them, and then he'll grade you on it. After all, many times I heard my mother say, God gave you a brain, use it. So that had to be what you were supposed to do. Now, I was one of those kids that was never any age. I vividly remember on my 13th birthday, I was 13 that morning. 
That afternoon, I was going on 14. And it was that way with everything in my life. I was always going on something else. One day at a time just did not fit in my philosophy for life. I was in a hurry to grow up, a hurry to go everywhere. You see, quite early in life, I decided when I grew up, I wanted a career. And I wanted that career to be that of an airline stewardess. And I just knew that they would do away with that profession before I got old enough to be one. So I had to hurry up and grow up so I could get that job. Now, I have to tell you that this philosophy worked for me, and it worked very well for many years. Anything I wanted to do, I did. Anything I set out to accomplish, I accomplished it. And I did do it with a degree of perfection. I did finally get old enough to apply for that job of an airline stewardess, and they hired me. I knew they would. After all, I had made up my mind that that's what I was going to do. And I still have that same job today, and I love that job. I'm just one of those very fortunate people who enjoys what they do for a living. Well, I'd been flying for quite a few years, and I'd been dating this guy about four years. And I was over at my mom and dad's one day, and my mother said, Are you ever going to get married? Well, I was very quickly approaching age 28, and I guess she thought she might have an old maid on her hands, and she didn't want that. Well, shortly thereafter, I was at home one day, and... This fellow lived in Miami, and I lived in Dallas, and he had a sister that lived in Miami. And one day he called me from over at his sister's house, and he asked me to marry him. And he was on the phone, his sister was on the extension to the telephone, and what could I say? All of his friends had been saying, when are you guys ever going to get married? So what could I say but yes? And from that moment until the moment I walked down the aisle... I had doubts about that decision. And I kept saying, God, if this is not what I should do, please let me know. But you see, I really wasn't in tune to listening to God. And there was no crash of lightning, no bolt of thunder. So I married that man. And very shortly thereafter found myself in a very unhappy marriage. And two years later, that marriage ended in divorce. Now, after getting into this program and getting honest with myself, I have to tell you and admit to some things. First of all, I contributed to the failure of that marriage way before he did. Because you see, when that divorce came about, even as early as when I became unhappy in that marriage, I blamed him because I had never failed at anything. And I felt that he caused me to fail at something. And I didn't like that sense of failure. So I blamed him totally for it. I have to tell you today that I contributed to the failure of that marriage way before he did. Because I married that man, not really loving him, as you should love someone to marry them. We both contributed to it, but I certainly made the first contribution to the failure of the marriage. I also know today that... God only showed me in about 500 different ways I shouldn't marry that man. But you see, I wasn't in tune to listening to God's will or asking for guidance. Because in my philosophy for living, God did not give guidance. So I wasn't in tune for looking or listening. Shortly after that divorce, I started dating this man. And he was then and he is now the most lovable, kind, considerate man I have ever known. 
And from the very start, we had the most wonderful thing about our relationship, the ability to communicate. And thank God we still have that today. We could talk about anything and everything, and I love that. There had been no communication in my first marriage, and I hated that. But here was a man that I could talk to about everything, and I love that. Shortly before we started dating, several months before, his wife had been killed. And we had been dating a short time, and he was arrested and charged with capital felony murder in connection with her death. And I thought this was the most unfair thing I had ever heard of in my whole life. How could anyone think this man, who was so kind and considered and loving, capable of doing such a thing? This man who had such respect for life and for living. There was just no way, and I thought it so unfair. Well, Rod had told me from the very first that he was a recovering alcoholic. Now, I knew nothing about alcoholism. I'd heard of AA, and I thought, well, that's a place where people go who are drunk all the time. And that was my only thought about it. We had many discussions about AA and about alcoholism, and he told me that alcoholism was a disease, and I didn't have any trouble with that. And if you would have asked me, I would have said, oh, I have a marvelous understanding of the disease of alcoholism. The truth was I understood so little. Well, due to the fact that Rod was charged with a felony, he was off from flying. We both worked for the same company, and he was off from flying that period of time until his trial was to come about. And I watched that man go through a very difficult time that summer because he so loved flying, and I had to watch him be without that. But he just demonstrated something to me that was just unbelievable, something I had never seen in a person before. He had the most unbelievable faith that I have ever seen anyone have. Somehow he just knew that everything was going to be okay. And many times he talked about this, and he was never resentful of the situation that he had been placed in on being put on trial for this murder or anything. And that was just unbelievable to me because I could find many reasons to be resentful about it. But never once did I hear him say an unkind or resentful thing about it. And he just talked about this faith he had and that everything was going to be okay. And I just never had seen anyone have that type of faith. Well, that was in the summer and in that fall, the trial finally, excuse me, in the winter, the trial finally came about and He was found not guilty, and we were just thrilled to death. And shortly thereafter, he was returned to flying, and then in the summer of 1978, we were married. And I want to say right now that this is the most wonderful marriage that anyone could ever have. It's far more than I ever dreamed a marriage could be. For the first time in my life, I love someone unconditionally. And I never knew I had the ability to love that way because I thought that type of love only existed in books. But purely through his example did I learn about unconditional love. Did I want to love someone unconditionally? He never tried to change me. He just accepted me the way I was. And a lot of times I was a real bitch. And he just accepted me and loved me 
just that way. And purely through his example did I want to experience and love unconditionally. Well, life was just a storybook romance. We both continued to, to fly and we flew as many trips as we could together. And life was just wonderful. Well, in October of 1979, I put Rod in the hospital with double pneumonia. And he was so sick. And they called in an internal medicine specialist to treat him. And after they got him all settled down in the hospital, I pulled that doctor aside and I said, My husband is a recovering alcoholic. Please don't do anything to endanger his sobriety. And that doctor looked at me and he said, Yes, ma'am. Your husband has told me that he's a recovering alcoholic. And I assure you I have a very good knowledge of the disease of alcoholism and I, will do, I won't do anything to disrupt that chemical imbalance and turn right around and prescribe Percodan four times a day for ten days for my husband. Now, I know today that that doctor had about as much understanding of the disease of alcoholism as I did at that time, which was none. Well, after ten days, they released Rod from the hospital, and I took him home, and he had some errands that needed to be done. And it was cold, and it was winter, and I didn't want him out in the weather, so I said I would go take care of those errands. And I was gone for a little while, and I came back, and he was asleep, and he slept most of that day. And he woke up that evening, and he was in the strangest mood. And I thought, oh, no, they've released him from the hospital too soon. He's just too sick to be out of the hospital. The next morning, he woke up, and he was his old self again. And that was confusing to me, but I was just so glad he was feeling better that I didn't question it. Several days later, I was out doing some things, and I came in, and he was asleep, and he slept most of that day. Once again that evening when he woke up, he was in that strange mood. And I so wanted to talk to him, but he was in such a strange place that I just couldn't. The next morning, he got up, and he was his old self again. And I wanted to ask him about that. And for the first time that I had, since I had known him, there was something I could not talk to him about. For some reason, I just could not ask him about this mood of the night before. Well, shortly thereafter, I had to face the realization that my husband was drinking, and I did not know what to do. I was scared to death. The first thing that came to my mind was when we talked about alcoholism back before we were ever married, when he told me that if he drank again, he would die. And you have to remember, I don't ask questions. The man said he would die, and I did not want him to die. I loved him. I didn't want to lose him. And that frightened me. The next thought that came to my mind was the exemption that he was flying under from the federal government, which said if he ever drank again, once again, they would pull his license. And I didn't want to see him go through that. I'd seen him go through a period of time without flying, and I knew how much he loved flying, and I didn't want to see him be without it. So I didn't know what to do about that. I was just in a paralyzing fear. I didn't know what to do about it, how to help or how not to help. So for a day or two, I just did nothing but sit around in a stupor and wonder what to do. Well, I decided I had to do something. Now, I'm one of these people that if I'm going to take up a new sport or learn a new hobby, I go and buy a book on it. So I got his AA book, and I flipped through it looking for the chapter entitled, How to Get Him Back into AA. Well, 
<laughs> there was no such chapter in the book, as you all know, so I threw the book aside. And I went to the bookstore. And I looked through all those books. And I uh, found this book, and I'm sure today that it was the title of the book that sold it to me. It was entitled The Booze Battle. And for some reason, I thought, yes, it's going to be a battle. And I took that book home, and I flipped through it, and I looked for that chapter entitled How to Get Him Back into AA. You see, I knew AA worked. I married a sober alcoholic who got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, so I knew it worked. I didn't understand a lot about the disease, but I knew AA worked. And that's all I wanted to do was to get him back into AA. Well, as I say, there was no chapter in that book entitled How to Get Him Back into AA, but I did get something out of that book. It said that if he has been drinking or is drinking, do not talk to him. So we played Silence is Golden at our house, and it was that deadly silence that you can't cut with a knife. You know, the self-righteous kind. Well, I could see right off that was not going to work. So I thought, I have got to do something. So I decided, well, I'll have a talk with him. And I stayed up most of one night rehearsing my speech about what I was going to say to him. The next morning after he woke up, I went into the bedroom to have this talk with him. And I went in there and the words just stuck in my throat. I could not talk about it. And I thought, what am I going to do? I'll do the next best thing. I'll write him a letter. So I wrote in this rather lengthy letter telling him what his drinking was going to lead to and what he needed to do about it. And the next morning I got up early and I was going to give him that letter. However, I wasn't quite that brave, so I decided I'll leave it for him to find. So I left it on the nightstand and I left because I wanted him to be there by himself when he read it. I gave him an appropriate amount of time to get up and read the letter and think it over. And I was on my way back home, and I just knew that when I got back home, he would say, Darling, you're right. I know what my drinking's going to lead to, and I've got to go back to AA, and that's what I'm going to do. And I really believe this is what was going to happen when I got home. Well, I got home, and I walked in the house all ready for this scene, and he didn't say a word. He didn't even mention that letter. And I thought, well, I don't know how he could have missed it, but maybe he did. And I went rushing down to the bedroom to find, see if he got the letter, and the letter was missing. So obviously he read it. And I thought, okay, I'll just write him another letter. So the next day I wrote him another letter. And once again left it for him. And once again he didn't mention that letter. And that made me angry. I thought, I have taken up a lot of my time writing him these letters to explain what his drinking's leading to, and... He doesn't even bother to acknowledge receiving them, let alone discuss it with me. So I just had to find something else to do. So I decided, okay, I'll plan his days for him. He just has too much time on his hands, and he doesn't know how to keep himself busy, and that's why he drinks. So I made out a schedule for his day, and I gave it to him, and I explained the whole thing to him, and I left to do whatever I was going to do. Now, as naive as it sounds... I truly believed when I got home that evening that all these things would be done and he would be sober. I got home that evening and that stranger was there, that stranger that they become when they take that first drink. 
And I thought, how did he do it? I was totally baffled. I thought, there's no way that he had time to drink today. He had too many things to do. Of course, you and I both know nothing on the list got done, but he had time to drink. Well, this is how our life was going. Every day for the four months of active alcoholism that I lived in, I had a different plan going for how I was going to get him back into AA. And at the evening when that plan for that day would have failed, I would have that brief sense of failure. And all of a sudden my mind would start saying, you can do it. You can find a way to get him back into AA. All you have to do is set your mind to it and you can find a way. And once again, I would start thinking of a new plan, a new way to get him back into AA. I must tell you that I do not know how much my husband drank. I never saw him take a drink. I never saw him stumbling drunk. You see, I became totally obsessed with the stranger that the alcoholic becomes once he takes that first drink. That personality change. I became so obsessed with that that that's all I looked for, that change in personality. And if there was the slightest change in personality, that was drunk to me. And that's all I looked for. And, you know, just the slightest little bit, as far as I was concerned, was drunk. Now, I should have gotten my first clue about this time that there was something wrong with me. One night, at this time, Rod was commuting to Los Angeles to fly his trip, start his trips. And one morning he left on his trip and he he always called me if I was at home and he was away on a trip. He always called me from his layover. And this particular night, he had not called at the appropriate time, I thought, and my mind started going crazy. I was good at playing the game of what if. You know, I didn't need my alcoholic there to go totally crazy. My craziest days, I was all by myself. And I did it all to myself. He wasn't even around. And this particular day, I was in that wonderful world of what if. And when he hadn't called by the appropriate time, I decided that what happened was that he got drunk on his way out to Los Angeles and went into operations drunk, and they fired him. And how many hotels are there in the Los Angeles area? And how am I ever going to find him? How am I ever going to get my hands on him to help him this time? And this was real to me. I believed that this is what had happened. Now, I knew he was not at the hotel in Montreal where he was supposed to be, but I was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. I would call the hotel to see if, just to make sure that he wasn't there. I knew he wasn't, but I would, would check. And I called the number of the hotel that I had in Montreal, and the girl answered, and she said, Oh, those crews don't stay here anymore. And I said, Well, do you have any idea what hotel they do stay in? And she said, well, you might try such and such hotel. So I called that hotel, and they said, no, but you might try this hotel, and I called that hotel. Well, I called about six hotels in Montreal, and I uh, dialed direct. I do not call person to person. And none of the, cru the crews didn't stay at any of the six hotels I called. So I decided, well, all I can do is call crew schedule and find out, because I've got to find out so I can start looking through the hotels in L.A. for him. So I called crew schedule, and a friend of ours answered that night. And I said, uh, Jim, I need that number of the hotel in Montreal where the crews lay over. And he gave me a number, and I said, Jim, that's not the right number. 
they don't stay there anymore. Don't you have a correct hotel list? And he said, well, no, Kathy, that's the only number I have. Uh, what's Rod's employee number? And perhaps it's on his sequence, what the hotel number is. So I gave him Rod's sequence number, and he said, just a second, I'll put it in the computer and be right back. Now, for some reason, I stayed on the telephone. My thought was, what am I going to do? I know he's going to come back on this telephone and tell me that Rod is not on that trip, and what am I going to do? I mean, how will that look? I don't even know where my own husband is. You know, the old pride and the ego. Well, for some reason, I did stay on the phone. In a few minutes, Jim came back on the phone, and he said, Well, Kathy, they've had a mechanical in Toronto, and they'll be landing in Montreal in about two or three minutes. And then he said it. He said, Kathy, are you okay? And I said, I'm fine, thank you, and hung up the telephone and thought, how dare you ask me how I am? I'm just fine. You ought to be worried about that captain. He's probably out drunk with your airplane. Of course, you and I both know that I was not fine. I was falling apart at the seams. That game of what if was real to me. And I was falling apart. In a few minutes, Rod did call me. Of course, I didn't tell him I'd been looking all over Canada for him. I just let that one pass. But totally going crazy all by myself. That game of what if. And I played it often. And it was real. Now, you know, with us both flying, trying to control an alcoholic for me, sometimes, depending whether I was at home or if we were both on trips, meant controlling from two, three thousand miles apart. But when you've been running the universe all your life, what's two or three thousand miles? You know, I was up to the challenge. And I would get to a hotel. If he was at home, I would rush up to the room and close the door and run for the telephone and call him up to see if he answered the phone, the man I loved, or if that stranger answered the telephone. And then I could hang up the phone and I could worry and wonder, how am I going to fix this one? What am I going to do? How am I going to fix it? Now, we don't have any children, so I didn't mess up the minds of any little children, thank God. But we do have a dog. And she kind of runs the place. Well, we have a window on each side of our front door. And if you drive into our carport, she goes to one of those windows. When I, during the drinking, when I would drive up, if he had been drinking, she would not bark. And her ears would be down. And I thought, see there, she doesn't like the drinking any more than I do. I must tell you today that the, there was no barking and the ears were down because she was reacting to me, not him. Of course, she sensed the drinking and she knew that caused problems because she knew if he had been drinking, I was going to come in and I was going to be angry. I was not going to want to play with her. I was going to make her go lay in the corner and leave me alone so I could worry, so I could come up with another plan of how I was going to get him to stop drinking. The worst thing for me during the drinking was the fear. It was a constant companion for me, and it was a paralyzing fear, just an all-consuming fear. And my fear was made up of these things. The F was my frustration, trying to make my husband stop drinking, trying to get him back into AA. When you feel your heart breaking, the pain is unbearable. When you have to stand by and watch the man you love more than life itself 
slowly killing himself. And you can't stop him. And worst of all, you can't help him. That's a frustrating experience. The E was my ego. I can do it. I can find a way to make him stop drinking. I felt if I talked to anybody, that would be to betray my husband, and I didn't want to do that. I loved him. I wanted to help him. I had to find a way to make him stop. The big I. The A was my anger. You know, from the very first when I realized he was drinking, my thought was, why during all those discussions about alcoholism did he not tell me what I should do if he went back to drinking? I know today that he never talked about that because he never planned on going back to drinking. But I was a long ways from that understanding at that time. And I was very angry about the situation. And the R was my resentment. I resented what I felt he was doing to our lives together, that he was destroying himself and destroying our life together. And then I resented God because I felt God was using my husband to punish me, for I knew not what. And I resented that. And my thought was, God, I don't deserve this, never thinking that neither did my husband deserve to go back to drinking. So I had a lot of resentments against God about this situation. One night I came home from a three-day trip. <coughs> and when I walked in the house, Rod was sitting on the sofa, and he said, Kathy, I want to talk to you. And that shocked me because we had not talked, not really talked, talked, in the four months. So I went in and I sat down and he said, I've got to do something about my drinking. And the only thing I know to do is to go back to AA. And here again I was shocked because he said he was drinking. Because you see, this was an understood thing. We never talked about it. We, the words never came out. He never said he was. I never said he was. We just, <laughs> just understood that he was. And he said he was going back to AA, and that made me very happy because my only thought was, thank goodness, the drinking's over and life will be just like it was before, and that's all I want. And the next night he did go back to AA, and I was real pleased about that. A couple of months later, the company found out he had been drinking and the FAA found out he had been drinking and this meant that we were going to have to go back through the exemption process. And I hated for him to have to do that. But I was just so happy the drinking was over, I'd go through anything. Well, the first thing we were going to have to do was see a psychiatrist. And the company called a psychiatrist in Maryland and they made an appointment with him and the first thing he said is, is Rod married? And they said yes and he said good, I'd like to see her too. And I thought that was strange. But I said, okay, I don't mind going. We got up to see the psychiatrist, and the first thing he said was, I'd like to talk to Kathy by herself. Now, I thought that was real strange, because my only thought was, hey, he's the one that's been drinking. Why do you want to talk to me? Well, I went in there and sat down, and the psychiatrist said, what did you resent most about the drinking? And I said, I resented the fact that we couldn't communicate during the drinking. It's one of the things that I've my most precious thing about our marriage is our communication and during the drinking we could not communicate and I resented that and he said mm-hmm and he said you really need to go to Al-Anon 
And I said, okay. And the next day the company called and they said, well, Dr. Wiseman has recommended that Rod go to a treatment center that has a family program so Kathy can go. Now, I thought that was real strange, but I'll do anything. So the next day I took him up to Westgate in Denton, Texas, and I saw the family counselor that day, and I said, how often can I see my husband? And she said, three times. On Wednesday night we have family night. On Friday night there's an open meeting, and on Sunday that you can visit with him. And I said, three times a week, that's all? And she said, that's all. You see, I had spied a little motel up there by the hospital, and I planned on moving in for 28 days so I could go to the hospital every day and help him. Well, I did go to that family program on Wednesday night, and I went in there, and I listened to those people, and I thought, my God, these people are sick. There's nothing wrong with me, but these people need help. I don't know what this thing Al-Anon is all about, but perhaps it can help them. I certainly hope so. You see, I know today that I went into those meetings comparing rather than trying to identify and any time I go to a meeting comparing, rather than trying to identify, I'm not guilty. There's nothing wrong with me. And that's what I was doing. Well, at the end of that 28 days, I once again saw the family counselor, and she said, are you going to Al-Anon? And I said, no, not yet, but I will. And she said, good, you really need to go. And the next night, I did go to my first Al-Anon meeting. And I will tell you right now, the only reason I went was to get everybody off my back. Because it seemed that every time I turned around, someone was saying, you really need to go to Al-Anon. And I was tired of hearing it. You see, I've always been a very gifted person. Now, I could figure these things out. Now, I had never been to Al-Anon, had never read any Al-Anon literature, had not talked to another Al-Anon, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, I knew what Al-Anon was all about. I knew that you went in those meetings and bitched and complained about that alcoholic. And that's all you did. And I didn't want any part of it. But I was willing to go to one meeting so I could tell everybody when they once again told me to go to Al-Anon that I had tried it. It wasn't for me. Well, I went to that meeting that night, and much to my surprise, they never mentioned the alcoholic. Now, they said, first of all, something that I did not like. They said, you let the AAs help your husband, and we'll help you. And I said, okay. And I thought, you're crazy. That may be how it works at your house, and that's fine and dandy. I'll help you when I get time, but I'm going to help my husband. Now, the next thing they said changed my entire purpose for going to Al-Anon. They said, we work the same 12 steps that AA works. And I thought, wonderful. I'll go to as many meetings as I can possibly go to so I can learn all I can about those steps so I can help my husband. And that was my purpose for going. And that's why I went for a long, long time. Now, about this time, my husband made a big mistake. One night before a meeting, he told me, and at the meeting he told the group, that he was having trouble with step three. And I thought, see, I knew I could help him. Now, mind you, I had not done take work step one, two, or three myself, but I was going to help him. And I am a born researcher. 
I got every piece of literature. I bought every book. And if it had a three in it, I read it. And furthermore, I read it to him. Now, I selected to do this right before going to bed. I don't know why I picked that time of day. I guess I thought, if I read it to him right before he goes to sleep, he'll fall asleep thinking about it, and one morning he'll wake up and he'll say, Thank you for helping me. I've got step three. I just figured it worked that way. Well, one night I was reading my latest bit of wisdom to him on step three after many nights of doing this, and he stopped me in mid-sentence, and he said, Kathy, if you read one more thing to me about step three, I am going to throw that book at you. I was furious. I thought, how ungrateful can you be? After I have spent all this time working and reading and researching, trying to help you with step three, and you don't even appreciate it. Well, I turned over and went right to sleep. Next morning, woke up, was still angry, went outside, worked in my flowers, telling him all about it. He'd just have to work this program by himself. I wasn't going to help him anymore. He would not have that advantage anymore. Now, to show you how sick I was before I ever got back in the house from working in the yard, I had another plan going on how to help him with his step three. I wanted to help him. You see, I know today that my husband had admitted his obsession, his obsession with alcohol, and he was doing something about his obsession. I had not come to terms, I had not admitted, I had not dealt with, was not working on my obsession, which was my husband. When he was drinking, I was obsessed with the drinking. Once he got it back into AA, I was obsessed with AA and his program. He isn't grateful enough. He's not going to enough meetings. He's not reading the right literature. He needs my help. Totally, totally obsessed with my husband. Never looking at myself. Controlling everything, trying to control everything about his program and his sobriety. Now, I did get a sponsor, and she just let me go through all this. You know, I would go to meetings, and I would say what I thought you wanted me to say. And I would think and do what I wanted to do. And I know today that she realized what I was doing, but she never said anything to me. And it's, I know that it was the best thing in the world for me that she didn't, because had she said, Kathy, you are still obsessed with Rod, you're still obsessed with his program, I would have said, no, I'm not. Because, you see, I learned a long time ago that if you're working on somebody, you don't tell them. They don't appreciate it. You just work on them. Once they get better, once they've changed, whatever, they'll recognize you've been trying to help them and they'll thank you for it. But you can't tell them you're doing it. So she let me go through this and I went to a lot of meetings. I, every time there was a meeting and I was at home, I was there. And, and today I thank God that I did go to a lot of meetings, that I kept going to meetings. Even though I was going for all the wrong reasons, I'm glad I kept going. Because I did finally reach a point where I could go in there and I could say, I need help. The confusion became great enough inside of me that I became convinced of steps one and two. Because when I got to you, I was not convinced that I was powerless over anything. I felt that there was nothing wrong with me. I was there to help my husband, and that's what I was going to do. 
I wasn't convinced of any powerlessness. I was not convinced of any power greater than myself because my philosophy did not go along with that. So I have to say, I did go to enough meetings that I did finally reach that point when I could go in there and I could listen to those ladies with an open mind and I could tell them I needed help. Now, I'm sure after hearing my philosophy about God, you can imagine what a difficult time I had with the God part of this program. And when I got to step three, I really had a hard time because what I heard you say was turn your life and your will over to God do God's will. And I wanted that, but I didn't know how. And I couldn't hear you saying how you did it. All I could hear you saying was, I'm doing God's will. I know God's will. And finally, I was able to see that all step three asked me to do was to make a decision. If and when I ever find a power greater than myself, I'll turn my life and my will over to that power. But today, all I have to do is make a decision and get on with it. And start that written inventory in step four. And take a look and get to know and get to be honest with Kathy. You see, all my life I've been putting other people in the workshop. I didn't look at me. I looked at you. I didn't work on me. I worked on you. And I did that written inventory in step four. And you know what? I came in here polishing my halo. And step four took my halo away because I discovered some things about Kathy, some character defects that I wasn't even aware of or that I never looked at. And I did my first step five with my sponsor. Who does not take this journey of the 12 steps as missing the whole program. You know, I think it's the most human thing in the world to have that feeling of if you really knew me you would not like me and step five removes that feeling because I told my sponsor in my step five things that I had done and things that I had thought things which I thought were the worst things in the world and she shared back with me and when it was all over she hugged me and she told me that she loved me and I told this lady what I thought to be the worst things in the world. And she accepted me just as I was and loved me. Now, step six and seven are very interesting steps for me. In step six, it says we're entirely ready to have all these defects of character removed. Step seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. And you know... I wish with all my life that I could have just read those and very honestly and humbly asked him to take them and he would have taken them and I'd have been rid of them. But for me, it didn't work that way. It may have worked that way for you, I don't know. But it didn't work that way for me. Because I have to work on being rid of these character defects. And, you know, he keeps, as long as I'm willing, bringing these character defects to my mind that I have to work on. Now, I've had a very difficult time with some of my character defects. You've heard most of my story now, and I know you're going to find this one hard to believe, but I could not see myself as a controller. I just could not see that. You know, my mother was the controller. You ask my father a question, my mother answers. That is a controller. I'm not that type of controller. The first, uh, to go back for a second, the first 
character defect which I had to become aware of and had to remove before I could really even start work on this program was the fact that all of my life it was important to me that you think I'm perfect. I know I'm not perfect, but that wasn't important. The fact was that as long as you thought I was perfect, that's all that mattered to me. And I would go to any length to make you think that I'm perfect. You see, the problem there is when you're trying to do that, you can't go into a meeting and say, I don't understand. You can't ask questions because people won't think you're perfect. And I couldn't do that. And I had to remove that roadblock before I could really start getting honest with me and looking at me. Now this thing about being the controller, the best example of the type of controlling that I did that I can give you is this. Um, my husband drives around with a little traffic director in the car. You know, we're driving along and I'll say, um, gee, there must be an accident up ahead. Everyone's putting on their brakes. That fellow in front of us is getting awfully close to us. Gee, are we in a hurry today? Saying everything except, gee, we sure are going fast. Why don't you slow down? You're way over the speed limit. Underhanded controlling. Doing every way to control the situation except to come right out and say it like my mother did. That was controlling. To me, the way I did it was just kind of helping and giving guidance, which I certainly was capable of doing. That underhanded controlling, it was so hard for me to recognize, so hard to come to terms with, yes, ma'am, that is being a controller. And I've had a hard time with it. I still have a hard time with it. I like controlling. I'm uncomfortable when I'm not in control of a situation. I never liked to drink because I, when I saw people get drunk, the times I'd gotten drunk, I wasn't in control and I didn't like that. That was uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me not to be controlling. However, I know today that it's not a very nice characteristic. Nobody likes it. I don't like it when I see it in other people. And I don't like it in me today. And I have to work on being rid of that. I want to say right now that every character defect I had, that I have, I had before I ever had an alcoholic. I did not get one character defect from living in active alcoholism. Active alcoholism aggravated my natural character defects. It did not give me character defects. I would have had them and they would have given me some trouble in any relationship if I would have never had an alcoholic in my life. Active alcoholism did aggravate them, but it did not give them to me. You know, and if I hadn't had that active alcoholic or if I hadn't had an active uh, an alcoholic at all, I probably just could have ignored them and gone along and been okay. As I say, they might have caused a few fusses and fights, but no big deal. But today I have a program that I work that shows me these character defects and it makes them uncomfortable for me and I have to work at being rid of them. I can't afford them because I see the problems they cause me and I have to work at being rid of them. In steps eight and nine, I had to make amends to quite a few people. Not apologize, but make amends, set it right for things I did to other people that wasn't right. 
Now, step 11. Every Sunday night, my group has a step study. And I went to, I go to that step study, and one night we were on step 11, and this was during the time that I was still working on my contact with a power greater than myself, a God of my understanding, and I was still having a very difficult time with it. And at this particular meeting on step 11, we read a reading, and it said, every day at the same time, have prayer and meditation. Whether or not you think it will work doesn't matter. Just do it. Now, I knew it wouldn't work, but I wanted to have what you said you had. I wanted to have a relationship with a God of my understanding. I wanted to do God's will. So I decided to give this a try. To hear the voice of God, I climbed the topmost steeple. But God declared, go down again, I dwell among the people. Today I know that's so true. God works through people, through people just like you, because it was through people just like you and through Al-Anon that I have found a God of my understanding. And I spend time with him in prayer and meditation. And today I have a wonderful, wonderful communication with the God of my understanding. I don't always, you know, feel like I have a super communication with him. Some days it's better than other days. But I do have a continuing communication with the God of my understanding. And you showed me how to have that. You taught me how to develop that. So I know that God does work through people. You know, a lot of, on a lot of our literature it says that AA and Al-Anon is a new design for living. And I like that. I love this program. I've also heard it said that Al-Anon will teach you how to cope, and I hate that. Because one of the definitions of the word cope, according to Webster's Dictionary, is fighting to stay even. I was fighting to stay even when I got to you. I had been fighting to stay even all of my life. If that is all that Al-Anon did was to teach me to fight to stay even, you'd have a different speaker today, because I already knew how to do that. I truly believe that Al-Anon and the 12 steps of this program teaches me how to live, to really live and to enjoy each and every minute of every day and to get the most out of life, to get out of myself and to give to other people. I get such a wonderful high. And this program has taught me how to do that. The program is the 12 steps. You know, and to keep it in my mind, I heard a little story one time, and it really brings this home to me. This little boy was having difficulty in school, and he was a bright boy, and this professor decided to take him out and spend the day with him and encourage him to where he would want to learn. And they took this little canoe trip, and they were going down the river, and a leaf floated into the boat. And the professor said, what kind of leaf is that? And the little boy said, I don't know. And the professor said, if you don't learn biology, you're going to miss 20% of life. And they went on down the river, and there were some carvings on some rocks. And he said, what Indians made those carvings on those rocks? And the little boy said, I don't know. And the professor said, if you don't learn history, you're going to miss 20% of life. They went on down the river, and it began to be night, and it got dark, and... 
The professor saw a star, and he said, What star is that? And the little boy said, I don't know. The professor said, If you don't learn astronomy, you're going to miss 20% of life. About this time, they felt a swift current in the river, and the little boy jumped out of the canoe and swam to shore, and he yelled back to the professor. He said, Do you know how to swim? And the professor said, No. The little boy said, If you don't know how to swim, you're going to miss 100% of life. And that's the way I feel about this program. If you don't work those 12 steps, you're going to miss 100% of the Al-Anon program because the entire program is the 12 steps. Going to meetings is very necessary. Reading the literature is very necessary. But my recovery, my tool for a successful, enjoyable life is in the 12 steps of this program. I love this program. There's no way that I can ever give back to you all what you have given to me. And you know, today I can say to my husband, you are you and I am I, and there's no wall between us, just a common understanding and love for each other's individuality. And today I can allow my husband the dignity to be responsible for his own sobriety, and he can allow me that same dignity. I don't get into his program and he doesn't get into mine. And I know today that I have to let him grow at his own pace and he has to let me grow at mine. And as much as I love him, as much as I would like to take any unhappy, hurtful time for him, I can't do that. Because I know that I have never grown from any good things that have ever happened to me. I've only grown from those difficult, hard times that I've had to work through, and I have to allow him that same right to grow. I want to thank you all for asking me to share with you today, and I would like to close with a little prayer that's very special to me. May God bless you with a clear dawning, a cool morning, a warm noonday, a golden sunset, a gentle twilight, a starlit night. And if clouds should cross your sky, may God grant you the faith to look for the silver lining. Thank you.